You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jeff Hertzberg and Zoe Francois are the authors of The New Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. This is a new and updated and revised edition. Thank you for joining me, Jeff and Zoe. Great yeah, great to be, to be with you. Thanks, Rick. You know, this is a book that I use every day, sometimes uh, a bit to my regret. <laughs> but uh, I think that um, one of the things that interested me uh, right off the bat when I opened up this book was a whole section on gluten-free recipes. And I'd like you to talk about the importance of gluten in making bread because in your recipes you talk about the gluten coat and then talk about why people don't get on with gluten and then talk about creating your recipes for those who can't get on with gluten. Sure, maybe you should start, Zoe. Okay. Well, I'll talk about um, sort of the recipes, and then I'll let Jeff talk about why people may not be eating it. We discovered early on with our actually our second book, Healthy Bread in Five Minutes a Day, that lots of people are not able to tolerate gluten, and they were requesting gluten-free bread. When we wrote our first book, we'd never even heard of this, or I hadn't heard of it. And then all of a sudden, all of these questions started pouring in about it. So we started researching, and we were just going to put some alternatives up on our website. And we got so many requests that we decided to put a whole chapter in our second book. And really, after that, it's just become what the normal is for us. We have to develop these gluten-free recipes because so many people want them. And so it was a little bit of a science experiment for us because, like you said, when you eliminate the gluten from the bread, because wheat has the gluten, it's the protein um, within the flour that develops the stretch and that lovely chew to it. When you eliminate that, you have a whole different way of baking. Um, And so in our recipes, we add something called xanthan gum, which is sort of binds up the, the um, dough so that it acts a little bit like a regular wheat bread. So we've tried to make the experience as similar to wheat bread as possible. Now, having said that, it is a little bit different, um, as equally as easy to use and for, for the readers, but it is a little bit different. And Jeff and I have um, videos and picture essays on our website, and so we've taken you know, our, the requests of the readers, and we've just given them what they want. So that's how we came to doing gluten-free. No getting, a, no getting around it these days. Yeah, Jeff, tell us a little bit about uh, what it is about gluten that causes people to have problems with it, and then tell us your take on some of the recipes. Sure. Um, well, so so we when I was in medical school, the the, the number we were given for how many people likely had celiac disease, which is the most severe form of gluten problem you can have. Uh, One of my textbooks said it's just incredibly rare. Uh, A textbook, and I went to med school fairly long time ago, but as recently as like eight, nine, ten years ago, uh, one of the pediatric books said something like one out of uh, of 10,000 people might have celiac disease. 
it looks like the real number that we not, might under, that we now understand is something closer to like one out of 130 or even one out of 100. It's not a majority of people, but one out of 100 Americans is a lot of people, and that's basically why we got so many requests on the website. Somebody's diagnosed with celiac disease. So in celiac disease, your body thinks that the gluten protein in wheat is sort of a foreign invader, and it mounts an immune response. And unfortunately, the inside of your intestine gets mistaken for the gluten, and it attacks your own intestine, and you just feel sick. Um, and so those people we've known about for a long time, although much more so, much greater awareness in the physician community in the last several years. So there's probably around 3 million people who have that, and my best sources tell me that there may be another 3 million or so, about another 1% that have something called gluten intolerance or maybe even a gluten allergy. Very few adults have gluten allergy or wheat allergy, but a lot of people just don't feel very well on gluten, and they get a variety of symptoms, and it gets better when they go off. You know, I would say there's no evidence that it's a huge number of people. I mean, 1% or 2% is a lot of people, but it's not 30%, and it certainly isn't. 100%, which is something you'll see if you surf around the Internet. On We want to make sure that we don't make crazy claims about gluten, because I think it's pretty narrow, but it's important for 1% or maybe even 2% of people. And we, we basically, just for the two of us, we had to come up with recipes where if we had one of these problems, would we eat this bread? And that was sort of the litmus test. And would our families eat the bread? And the answer is yes, because you can make decent bread if it's fresh, for some reason, I guess the gluten holds on to water, but gluten-free bread goes stale pretty quick, so it's a perfect fit for doing stuff homemade. The packaged breads that we were buying in the store, I wasn't sure about this concept until one day Zoe showed up at my door with a bag full of gluten-free bread from the store that could probably cost 50 bucks. I owe you money, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, like five loaves of bread for 50 bucks, and they were all comically bad. They, they, they actually were shot up with preservatives so that they could, be, could have a shelf life, which is the first problem. Uh, but the second problem is they just weren't good. You just can't make a product like this, I think, to have shelf life. And what we have is something that if neither of us or our family members have a problem with gluten, but if we did, I'd be making this. I'd be making everything out of this book. You know, that's one of the things I thought that was uh, so interesting because uh, for a while my wife was experimenting with gluten-free bread, and we had that same problem. I mean, it was it was terrible, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was expensive as well. And right. I, I think one of the things that's really nice about this is that once you learn how to stock your larder with the, with the ingredients, the, the brown rice flour and the tapioca flour and the potato flour, and those are all pretty easy to find these days, right. you can just make yourself the dough and the dough stays fresh and you can have that in your refrigerator and you can have a fresh loaf of bread and i think that's one of the great virtues of this of your bread cooking technique is the ability to have this stuff to hand to make a really delicious loaf of bread when you want it and have it ready and fresh and delicious right and we found that that worked for gluten-free as well that you could make a large batch so mix once and bake many times suddenly that changes the the whole equation of whether somebody who's busy has time to make bread, because you do if it's pre-mixed and it's ready to go. You take it out of the fridge, shape it, let it rest, and then into the oven. So it's the same method as our previous, you know, previous three books, um, and builds on it just with gluten-free. In fact, all of our books, except the very first one, the, the initial edition of this book that came out in 2007, we've had glu some gluten-free recipes 
in all of our books. And we've got, for people who want to try the gluten-free, and I don't want to belabor the gluten-free, because, by the way, most of our recipes have wheat. Um, if people wanted to try our gluten-free, you can come to our website, which is breadin5.com, B-R-E-A-D-I-N, the numeral 5.com. And we've got recipes you can sample, gluten-free and, well, frankly, mostly wheat, because most of our most of our world and most of our readers and certainly most of what we eat and test is is wheat-based. You know, uh, there are so many great recipes in this book. And, you know, some of the new ones, the, one of the ones that I tried, and I, you and I, I had talk, have talked a little bit about this over Facebook and Twitter, was the Wisconsin cheese bread. And that is an amazing, uh, lo- makes an amazing loaf of bread. And I did something slightly different with it in that I wanted to cook it in a loaf pan so I could get nice big slices to make uh, panini sandwiches. And when you cook this in a panini maker, the outside crust of your bread gets a little bit of a taste of like Cheez-Its. <laughs> that's great I gave a piece I made a sandwich for my son he goes dad that tastes like (laughs) Cheez-Its it's really quite delicious it it makes the best panini you can imagine all I do is you can just a little pepper jack a slice of prosciutto you're good to go for a a great sandwich and now was this sent into you by a reader well you know our neighbors are you know the Wisconsinites and so we're we're constantly in the dairy state battle with them, but they add they have this special combination of beer and cheese that they sort of own. So we had to make a bread dedicated to our neighbors uh, with bread with uh, cheese and beer. And I imagine when you toast that up, you get that nice caramelized cheese on there. It probably does taste just like a cheese. It I've got to do that for my boys. You know, even with the beer. <laughs> you know, it, this book too. It, it's much bigger. You have a lot more recipes, and uh, I have to hastily remind our readers that there's a lot more in here than bread. There are sandwiches. There are, are things to make with the bread, and, and you've added a lot more beautiful illustrations. Tell us a little bit about the photography for this book. We we um, the the first book didn't have many. We were first time authors that basically got a book deal out of sheer luck, being in the right place at the right time, uh, with an editor who heard me on the radio sort of blithering about this idea in a call-in show. And first-time authors, if you've ever tried to publish a book and you don't already have a TV show or a successful way to reach the public, they really don't want to invest in photography and illustrations and marketing and advertising and all of those things in the publishing (laughs) industry is getting even more so like that. Um, and so all we got was eight pictures, and with each of our subsequent books, we've as they've been successful, we've been lucky enough to convince them to... We have 40 now, isn't it, Zoe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of color, a hundred black and whites, which people find very, very useful. Yeah, so that was a priority for us. Now, one of the ways we got around this was we started to put a lot of good photography on the website. That's ours. Uh, the photography in the book is by a terrific photographer named Stephen Scott Gross out of New York, who just does a great job for us. You know, uh, I'd like you to just talk about, you talked about being first-time authors and writing this first book. 
tell us a little bit about how you feel you've grown as cookbook writers over the years. I mean, it's been uh, 2007, to, you know, seven years. That's a, a long time. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you two have worked together, um, shared recipes, you, you know, shared your lives and a lot, broken a lot of bread together. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I think that we've learned a lot from each other, but I, I think, honestly, I've learned the most from our – because when they're working this book and we have our website and they come and ask us questions about the book, we get such an insight into how they're using it and how we could streamline things or expand things or write things more clearly. We also understand that the way people are baking is – changing so much. Um, It's sort of a global um, community now, and so many, many people are baking with scales, um, which they do exclusively in Europe, but it's very new to the U.S. for people to bake um, with weights instead of measures. So that was one of the things that we actually added to this book, was we we have still all the cup measures for people that, you know, are comfortable with that, but people that want to get into baking with weights, which is very, very accurate, and it actually saves time um, to just throw the bucket on the scale and weigh out all of the ingredients. It it's actually makes it more like four and a half minutes a day. Um, <laughs> but things like that come from our readers because they're asking us, for the information or giving us their feedback or telling us their stories. And so I feel like I've learned so much from from listening to them and communicating with them. My story was a tiny bit different than hers because Zoe came to this um, partnership already a pastry chef, and she'd been through culinary school, and they teach you and they condition you to think about recipes, and you taste something and they think, how'd they do that? And so they're reverse engineering it in their heads and they're thinking what the proportions were. And for me, I just had, I mean, I'm a, I was a complete amateur. I didn't think in terms of recipes. I had this basic idea in my head of how wet the dough would need to be so you could store it in the refrigerator, uh, but not so wet that it would spread all over the place. And I knew what it would look like. And Zoe, when we first started working together, my God, 10 years ago, uh, what's the proportion, and where did you write these down? And I tapped my head, and I said, it's all up here. I don't need to write it down. Because, I mean, I don't know what really happened at this point. It's lost in the mists of history. But um, I, for me, I wanted to get away. I, I do science all day and data. I'm a medical director for companies that do healthcare software. And I look at this as a creative outlet. So basically, my transition as an author is I learned to think in terms of recipes and proportions and ratios, and I absolutely love weighing. I, you know, I use all of our books all the time, but I never use cup measures anymore. I always scale them. And uh, for, the, for the first book that didn't have the weights, to the extent that I was still using it before this book came out, I, I was penciling in the weights as an equivalent. Um, the other thing I would say for people who are thinking about trying to learn how to be a cookbook author and maybe do this. You know, there's sort of a path people are taking now that didn't exist for us when we started, which is people start blogs and websites, and that's revolutionized the business. And in a way, it's great. It lets people come in who never would have come in. But, but what I would say is, boy, I can't understand how people do this alone. I, I, I never would have, I would never consider writing a cookbook completely alone. You, you need somebody to bounce ideas off of, 
you need somebody to work with. Otherwise, I think, frankly, it's kind of lonely work. And I think, you know, a lot of the solo cookbook authors that are out there, sort of quietly, they've got people they're working with, is my guess, because I don't think the work is... <laughs> I, I, I guess I'd more than guess that. Um, because it's fun, it becomes fun. It becomes a game. You, you taste each other's food. Your families taste each other's food. And this would have been a little bit flat if I'd been sitting in my house trying to do any of that. Well, it never would have happened. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things I loved was uh, one of the new recipes I loved. And I tried this with the I, – I cooked a brioche using this, uh, the, the crock pot bread. <laughs> that, what, a, what a great way to, to cook that because that's already kind of a soft loaf anyway. Yeah, and it and it turned yeah. out really nice. And that's it. so, tell us a little bit about that discovery, and and you know, because you went into that, you know, uh, a little bit skeptical, didn't you? Oh no, I knew it wouldn't work. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, Jeff and I got that request from <clears throat> excuse me somebody on our website a long while ago, um, and it took us a very long time. Um, and, you know, and to try it, and it took several requests, and finally we had enough people interested in this concept that I said, well, what the heck, I have dough, why not, I have a crock pot. I threw it in there, and I could not believe that it worked. I mean, it was brilliant. The, the concept is so incredible because you form the, the dough, you have the dough sitting in your refrigerator, you form it into a ball, you plop it into your crock pot, you don't have to let it rest beforehand, you just plop it in there, turn it on, and an hour later, I had a loaf of bread. It was quite amazing. Um, I do typically, when I'm baking in the crock pot, I do typically throw it under the broiler for a minute so that it, it gets a little bit of caramelization on the top and it has a really nice color, but you don't have to do that. Um, and we threw this up on our website saying, we're sorry it took us so long to you know, get back to you on this, but it works and it's crazy. And we've had millions of hits on that thing. People are crazy about it. So um, it's a great way to save space around the holidays if you're baking for lots of people. And it's a great way to bake in the summer when you don't want to preheat your oven. And um, there's lots of people out there that we hear from that don't have ovens at all. They have maybe a toaster oven and a crock pot or, you know, for whatever reason. We've even heard from people that are living in their RVs and they can't bake, so they're doing this. It's really amazing um, how this loaf took off. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was that as we use this book, um, more and more, it becomes easier and easier to use, and you get more comfortable, and you can kind of like, uh, if you run into a problem where, let's see, I was making brioche, and I ran out of white, white flour, and I just threw in a cup of of uh, whole wheat, and it gave me this really nice brioche that my wife quite loved better, better than anything else I think I'd made for her. So mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk about just... Um, as you use the book, becoming familiar with recipes and swapping out and just plain tweezing them, I guess, is the, is the idea. Well, like any good method, well, I mean, I, sort of, I own cookbooks, but I don't typically use them much after I initially read them because I, I see what they were driving at. I mean, when I learned how to saute some butter and shallots 30 years ago and then throw wine or stock or 
or a, or a broth on it. Um, I don't know that I need to ever look at a recipe again to do that. I can do it with any broth. I can do it with any fat. I can do it with onions or scallions or something else. And this is the same idea. Um, after a few batches, people start to understand how wet it should look. And if it looks wetter because they swapped out a flour, well, they'll probably just put a little more flour in. So our dough should look pretty wet. It's, it, it takes the shape of whatever container it's in. So it's much wetter than most dough people ever have used who are, who are traditional bread bakers. Um, and they, they come to understand that. And if it comes out, if they change something and it looks like traditional dough, they know that it needs a little more water next time. You actually can work it in right then and there. So um, especially once you switch to the scale, you can see that you, you sort of get a sense of which flowers absorb how much water. And I find that people can just start varying all over the place, flowers and grains. I get a lot of requests from people um, about wanting to make uh, sort of transition their old recipes from their you know, grandmother or aunt into our method. One of the things that I do suggest when they're playing with that is that they maybe start with a half batch just in case things don't quite, the experimenting needs to continue on. So if you are going to experiment with something and change our recipes radically, you may want to start with a half batch. And I have to say, when I wanted to mention that, too, that it's really nice how easy you can half or double any of these recipes to uh, suit them for, you know, the, the number of people you're feeding, how long you're going to be keeping the stuff in the refrigerator. I mean, that makes this book incredibly flexible and really useful. I mean, I made when I made the, the brioche, I made just enough to give myself one big loaf for my wife, and I made two plates of cinnamon rolls out of one half batch and that worked out really nicely it was kind of fun to have every use everything up and have all this stuff ready to go yeah terrific now um with this new book i I think you you give us a a lot of pizzas and flatbreads and so tell us a little bit about including those in with your regular breads and uh some of the the ways that you know the changes that in mindset in terms of cooking this stuff because it kind of like uh, blew my mind when I said, you know, saw instructions like cook this in a fry pan. I mean, in my world, in my house, I, I have one or two doughs that I typically make, and then I'll either roll it out, uh, make a round loaf that's free form, or put it in a loaf pan, and I'll either will or won't put things like raisins or nuts in it, but I'll pass that single dough off <laughs> as many different kinds of bread, because I don't think like a chef where I want to make a perfect for the meal I'm building. Uh, so Zoe has a different approach that I think involves many, many refrigerators. <laughs> I do. I have three refrigerators now in my house. Wow. One of them is actually dedicated to the dough, but yes, Jeff and I have very different approaches about, about this. But, but, it, but it's versatile. I mean, if, if a dough works as a free form, it'll probably work as if you roll it out or stretch it. If, if we're going by... Italian Neapolitan pizza rules, you have to just use your hands, um, but you can roll it out because this is America and it's a free country. So you could roll out the same dough. I mean, I don't have a different pizza dough than what I'm using for, a, you know, my typical lean. In other words, not enriched, not a sweet dough, not a buttery dough, but a lean dough. I can use pretty much any lean dough from the book to make a really good pizza. And by the way, Caraway Rye makes a great pizza. It's definitely offbeat. It's not for everybody, but I love it. I didn't put it in the book, so so your listeners will be the only ones who do that, you know, off California. 
Um, but but you can usually get away. It's very very forgiving. This is a this is a wet dough. It's not going to dry out. If you fool around with it, if you over bake it a little bit, it's going to be all right. Unlike typical doughs, where especially the eggy doughs. To my surprise, when I was learning about recipes with bread, putting egg into the dough doesn't necessarily make it moister because it, if you over bake it, the dough the proteins in the egg sort of squeeze the water out of the matrix. Um, and having a wet dough prevents that, so we, we never we never get into that problem. So you can make a flatbread out of brioche. I've done that, and actually we've got a bunch of recipes uh, in the pizza book, which was our third book, using brioche rolled out like a pizza with fruit and cheese, um, as a, as a, sort of like an apple pie. Zoe, remind me what else was in there that's just like that. Um, that's in our new book or in our well, pizza book, because we have a whole book dedicated to all of these. Um, and different techniques. Oh that's yeah, just I about pizza. Right. Uh, I used to make the the there was an apple uh, pie pizza that that I used to make until my wife said you can never make that again <laughs> because we just would eat it. <laughs> always the yeah. Always... I think that's in our pizza book, which uh-huh. I I think is terrific. Now uh, I'm wondering where where this is. I think a great book, and, and you can. And I think no matter which of your other books you have, I think this book is a, is a good addition because it gives you a lot more um, recipes, more pictures. And I also think it's just nice to have a, you know, to to freshen up your, your cooking grits, so to speak, your ingredients. And I think cookbooks are actually ingredients in anyone's cooking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to think about it, and I agree. Now, uh, yeah. what are you guys planning next? Well, we're working on even more gluten-free recipes, and we may put it together into a whole book. Wow, that sounds great. I've been speaking with Jeff Hertzberg and Zoe Francois. Their new book is The New Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, revised and updated with new recipes. Thank you for joining me, Jeff and Zoe. Great. Thank you so much, and happy baking. (laughs) Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.